everybody. Um, so we're, we're actually going to start with a little video, uh, sort of trailer for the book, if you don't mind. So roll the trailer. In December 2012, a complex systems scientist walked up to the podium at the American Geophysics Union to present a paper. It was titled, Is Earth Fucked? His answer was, yeah, pretty much. That's where the road we're on is taking us. But that has less to do with carbon than it does with capitalism. Our economic model is at war with life on Earth. We can't change the laws of nature, but we can change our broken economy. And that's why climate change isn't just a disaster. It's also our best chance to demand and build a better world. Change or be changed. But make no mistake, this changes everything. So that, that, that short was um, directed by, by my husband, Avi Lewis, who's going to be speaking this afternoon. And all those images are from a film that's going to be coming out um, in a couple of months uh, that he has been making. So I'm so happy to be back at Bioneers. Kenny, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, and my deepest gratitude to the entire Bioneers team for creating this transformative meeting of minds year after year after year. So this is a photograph from the day in 2007 when Richard Branson, the impresario behind the Virgin Empire, launched his Virgin Earth Challenge, a $25 million prize that would go to the first person to invent a technological solution to the problem of global warming. Specifically, the task was to build some kind of gizmo to suck large amounts of carbon out of the air and sequester it without countervailing harmful effects. Now, $25 million for a single prize is a lot of money. It is the largest uh, pot of money for any scientific award out there. Um, and uh, I want to just take a little closer look at this picture. So you see, you see Branson over there with that big grin on his face, gleefully tossing the planet in the air as if it were a beach ball. And there's Al Gore next to him, looking a little unsure about whether this is a good idea. Um, so I wanted to show this to you because I feel like this frozen moment is the perfect snapshot for the first incarnation of the climate movement the one that failed. <laughs> An extremely wealthy and powerful man with the whole world literally in his hands, promising to save the fragile blue planet on our behalf. 
This heroic feat will be accomplished, he has just announced, by harnessing the power of human genius, assumed, of course, to be infinite, as infinite as fossil fuels, and the desire to get really, really rich. So, if you ask me, pretty much everything is wrong with this picture. The, you've, got, you've got the reinvention of a major climate polluter, owner of multiple airlines, into a climate savior based on little more than good PR. No one has won the prize, by the way, and uh, probably never will. And you've got the firm belief that dangling enough money can solve any mess we create. Such is the power of greed. The certainty that the solutions to climate change must be handed down uh, from above by our elites, by the biggest winners of our current economic system. And you've got the unquestioned assumption that the goal of climate action is to find solutions that require no change of our consumption or lifestyle patterns whatsoever. And indeed, Branson was explicit about this at the time. He said, if the, if the prize yields this magic bullet, quote, we can drive our cars, we can fly our planes, life can carry on as normal. Now, to paraphrase Arundhati Roy, uh, the goal for this set is to change without having to change at all. <laughs> um, so there's no doubt that if you are one of the big winners of our current system, there's a powerful appeal in that. If you think that the only problem with our economic model is the small matter of rising sea levels, um, then you're looking for a fix that is going to leave the status quo pretty much unchanged. If, however, you are part of the vast majority of the people on this planet who know that this system is failing uh, with or without climate change, then you may have a very different approach. So I've also begun to think that there is another problem with this picture besides all of that. And that has to do with that pale blue sphere that Branson is um, tossing skywards. For more than 40 years, the view of the Earth from space has been the environmental movement's unofficial logo. It's featured on countless t-shirts, pins, bumper stickers, and if you have one on one of your bags at the moment, don't feel bad. Um, it's the thing that we're supposed to protect at UN climate conferences. It's the thing we're called upon to save every Earth Day as if the planet were an endangered species or a starving child far away or a pet in need of our love and care. And that conception, the planet as needy child or animal, is, I think, just as dangerous as that idea born in the 1600s that the Earth was an inert machine and that we humans were its engineers called upon by God to exert total mastery. Though these seemingly quite different narratives, different in spirit, both put humans quite literally on top of the world. So, yeah, think about it. When we marvel at that blue marble in all of its delicacy and frailty and resolve to save the planet, we cast ourselves in a very specific role. That role is of a parent, the parent of the earth. But the opposite is the case, as every traditional society that sees the earth as a mother knows. 
It is we humans who are fragile and vulnerable and the earth that is hardy and powerful and holds and us in its hands. In pragmatic terms, our challenge is less to save the earth from ourselves and more to save ourselves from an earth that, if pushed too far, has ample power to rock, burn, and shake us off completely. That knowledge should inform all we do, especially the decision about whether or not to gamble on high-tech fixes and tamper with the Earth's climate systems. Now, it wasn't supposed to be this way. When NASA first shared that photograph of the whole Earth as seen from space, there was a great deal of rhapsodizing about how the image would spark a leap in consciousness. When we were finally able to see our world as an interconnected and holistic entity, we at last would understand that this lonely planet is our only home and that it's up to us to be its responsible caretakers. This was spaceship Earth. And the great hope was that being able to see it would cause everyone to grasp our dependence on that fragile envelope of soil and atmosphere on which our collective survival is based. So how did we get from that humility before life's precariousness to celebrating billionaires playing planetary beach ball? One person who saw it coming was Kurt Vonnegut who saw a lot coming. Um, he wrote in 1969, Earth is such a pretty blue and pink and white pearl in the pictures NASA sent to me. It looks so clean. You can't see all the hungry, angry Earthlings down there and the smoke and the sewage and the trash and the sophisticated weaponry. In other words, seen from space, there are no people down there. It's worth remembering this point. It's worth remembering that before this point, American environmentalism had mostly been intensely local, an earthy thing, a lowercase earth thing, not an uppercase earth thing. It was Henry David Thoreau musing on the rows of white bush beans by Walden Pond. It was Edward Abbey ranging through the red rocks of southern Utah. It was Rachel Carson down in the dirt with DDT-contaminated worms. It was vividly descriptive prose, naturalist sketches, and eventually photography and film, seeking to awaken and inspire love for specific places, and by extension, places like them around the world. When environmentalism went into outer space, adopting the perspective of the omniscient outsider, literally the God's eye view, things did start getting awfully blurry. Because if you are perpetually looking down at the earth from above rather than up from its roots and soil, it begins to make a certain kind of sense to start shuffling around pollution sources and pollution sinks as if they were pieces on a planetary-sized chessboard, a tropical forest to drink up the emissions from a refinery in Ohio and call it a carbon offset, for instance, Fracked gas to replace coal and call it a bridge fuel. Great fields of corn to displace petroleum and call it green energy. And perhaps if we stay on the road we're on uh, towards catastrophic levels of warming, iron in the oceans to soak up the carbon in the sky and sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere to reflect the sun's rays back to space, so-called geoengineering. Now, as these solutions, uh, so-called uh, 
solutions are advanced, just as Vonnegut warned. The people down below those wispy clouds often do seem to disappear. People with deep attachments to particular pieces of land with very different ideas about what constitutes a climate solution. This chronic forgetfulness about inconvenient other people is the thread that unites so many fateful climate policies of recent years. From the decision from some big green groups to champion fracked natural gas, failing to notice that there were people on those lands that were willing to fight against the shattering of their territory and the poisoning of their water, to carbon trading and carbon offsets, forgetting the people once again, the ones forced to breathe the toxic air next to the refinery that stayed open thanks to those backroom deals, as well as the ones locked out of their traditional forests that were being converted into offsets somewhere else. We saw the same above-it-all perspective take its toll tragically when many of these same players persuaded themselves that biofuels were the perfect low-carbon alternative to oil and gas, only to discover what would have been blindingly obvious if people had figured more prominently in their calculations, as prominently as carbon, that using prime land to grow fuel puts the squeeze on food and widespread hunger is the entirely predictable result. This lethal amnesia is once again rearing its head in the debates over geoengineering. It's awfully reassuring to imagine that a technological intervention could save the Arctic ice from melting, but what many of the models shows is that um, putting sulfur into the stratosphere could well interfere with the monsoons in India and Africa. And once again, far too little attention is being paid to the billions of people who live in those monsoon-fed parts of the world and could well pay the price for these high-risk technologies with their lives. In some cases, the effects of the astronauts' eye view prove particularly extreme. Their minds hovering out in orbit, there are those who begin to imagine leaving the planet for good bidding farewell to the whole mess. Indeed, as I researched um, the geoengineering clique, I noticed that a great many of them harbored an unsettling fascination with building space colonies. Um, here's Branson again. In my lifetime, I am determined to be part of starting a population on Mars. I think it is absolutely realistic. It will happen. He even wants to go himself, if my wife will let me. Um, <laughs> And he points out, after all, something dreadful might happen to the Earth, and it would be very sad to see years of evolution going to waste. Now, indeed, this is pretty rich coming from a man whose airlines um, have a carbon footprint the size of Honduras, and who is putting his hopes for planetary salvation on a carbon-sucking machine that has yet to be invented. Instead of just embracing existing zero carbon technologies today. But for a great deal of our elites, it's actually easier to imagine uh, dimming the sun on a planetary scale than rolling out uh, a renewable energy program that would put solar panels on people's roofs. Uneconomic, says Bill Gates. <laughs> The danger is not so much that these radical visions will be realized. Geoengineering the Earth is a long shot, never mind terraforming Mars. 
The problem is that these various technological escape fantasies are already doing real harm in the, real, in the, in the here and now. As Kenneth Brower has written, quote, the notion that science will save us is the chimera that allows the present generation to consume all the resources it wants, as if no generations were follow. It, it is the sedative that allows civilization to march so steadfastly towards environmental catastrophe. It forestalls the real solution, which will be in the hard, non-technical work of changing human behavior. And worst of all, it tells us that should the fix fail, we have somewhere else to go. Now, we know this escape theory all too well, this escape fantasy. It's Noah's Ark. It's the rapture. It's pretty much every Hollywood movie ever made. It's the one that tells us that at the very last minute, some of us, not all of us, but the ones that really matter to the main plot, are going to be saved. And since our secular religion is technology, it won't be God that saves us, but Bill Gates and his gang of super geniuses and Richard Branson and the big brains going after that $25 million prize money. We hear versions of this narrative every time a commercial comes on about how coal is on the verge of becoming clean. Um, and now about how the mighty sun may be turned down as if it were little more than a chandelier on a dimmer. Now, if one of the current batch of these schemes doesn't work, the same story tells us that something else will surely arrive in the nick of time. We are, after all, the super species, the chosen one, the God species. We will triumph in the end because triumphing is what we do. But do any of us really believe these stories anymore? After so many of our most complex systems have failed, from BP's deep water drilling to the derivatives market, with some of our biggest brains failing to foresee these outcomes, the power of this hackneyed narrative arc is beginning to weaken. We're losing faith in messianic billionaires and their technological miracles they keep dangling to protect a toxic status quo. And the best news is that the time of astronauts I view environmentalism is appearing to, to, to be coming to a close. And a new movement is rising to take its place one deeply rooted in specific geographies, but networked globally as never before. Some have taken to calling this movement Blockadia. Blockadia is not a specific location on a map, but rather a roving transnational conflict zone that is cropping up with great intensity wherever extractive companies are attempting to put natural systems at risk, whether for open pit coal mining or gas fracking or tar sands or oil pipelines. Spend enough time in Blockadia and you start to notice patterns. The slogans on the signs, water is life. You can't eat money. Draw the line. Though often described as anti-fossil fuel, this is in fact a pro-water movement one grounded in a ferocious love of place. And as you'll be hearing from my dear friend Clayton Thomas Mueller next, many of these movements are led by indigenous people using their land and title right, rights to block planet destabilizing projects. Increasingly, they are also inspired and being transformed by an indigenous worldview that is reviving long buried traditions of humility before nature and the deep knowledge that we are not above the world, but of it, the antithesis of the hubris of the would-be planet hackers. 
This movement is telling new stories to replace the techno-escape fantasies that this planet is our only home and that what comes around goes around. And most importantly, what goes up stays up for a very long time. So she, we should be a lot more careful about what we put there. This is more than a change in strategy. It's a fundamental change in perspective and values. For decades, large parts of the environmental movement spoke in the borrowed language of risk assessment, action necessary to save humanity from the very real risks of climate chaos were coolly balanced against the risks such action would, would put, pose to our GDP as if economic growth still had meaning on a planet convulsing in serial disasters. In Blockadia, risk assessment has been abandoned on the barricaded roadside. Because when what is being fought for is not an abstract emission reduction target, but an identity, a culture, a beloved place that people are determined to pass on to their grandchildren, there is nothing companies can offer as a bargaining chip. There is no pledge of safety that will assuage, no bribe will be big enough. These communities are simply saying no. No to the pipeline, no to the mine, no to the coal and oil trains, no to the heavy hauls, no to the export terminals, no to fracking. And not just not in my backyard, but as the French anti-fracking activists say, ni ici, ni ailleurs, not here or anywhere. And, and these movements, these movements are winning. They're winning state and provincial-wide fracking bans and moratoriums from Quebec to New York State. They're winning countrywide fracking bans to France and the Czech Republic. Blockadia has led to the cancellation of three massive coal export terminals in the Pacific Northwest, and the other three are in deep trouble. It's spreading, it's spreading investor uncertainty, investor uncertainty throughout the Alberta tar sands, with new developments being put on ice, because it's not at all clear that once they dig up all that dirty bitumen, they'll be able to get it out. The fossil fuel divestment movement, meanwhile, is moving from strength to strength, from Stanford's pledge to sell its coal to Glasgow University's decision this past week to become the first European university to divest from fossil fuels, and this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning because local fights are morphing into guiding principles. No new carbon frontiers from the Arctic to the Amazon. No new sacrifice zones. We can power our lives without poisoning anyone. Justice and reparations for the communities that have already suffered the most in the old model. The polluter must pay to clean up this mess. The bill cannot be passed on to the most vulnerable. The time of privatized profits and socialized gains is coming to a close. This is a movement of many movements, and though utterly undetectable from outer space, it is beginning to shake the fossil fuel companies to their very core. Thank you.